Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptor Show. I am sitting here today with George Gammon. He has taken the internet, taken YouTube by storm recently with his super cool videos with the whiteboards. If you haven't seen them, you need to, so I'll link to it down below. Um, has just an amazing way to take these complex subjects and make them very easy to understand, especially with the graphics. And I'm super excited to have you, George. Thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to have a chat and a uh, lot to talk about. That's for sure. So much to talk about. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've been doing a anal analysis and commentary for quite a long time. And sometimes you get these like boring patches, uh, but yeah. not right now. There's more than enough to go around. Um, <laughs> I've been watching your videos and the last several videos you've done, they're all, you know, talking about the topic of the moment, which is yeah. the bailouts, the stimulus, the unlimited, you know, quantitative easing, et cetera. And uh, you've really been breaking down like all these like acronyms that the Fed keeps coming up with. All right. Uh, maybe right. tell us about some of these acronyms and kind of what that means. Oh, geez. Well, the bottom line is they're just trying to buy everything in sight. So I think if you start from there, it's much easier to understand any of the I call them four letter solutions, but that, you know, the news changes so quickly. First, it was all the four letter quote unquote solutions that they had back in 2008, but now they've added more and they're now coming up with these five letter solutions. The, the, even the letters are expanding just like their balance sheet. So, <laughs> but really what each program, let's call it, is all about is just giving the Fed an excuse to either lend money directly to corporations or to buy their equity or buy their existing debt. It's really what it's all about. So the, the end game, I think, is the Fed is going to have stocks, bonds, they're going to own a lot of the equity and debt of the S&P 500. So it's all going from the private sector onto their balance sheet. And if you think about it from their standpoint, it makes sense because our economy is really all about asset bubbles, debt, and confidence. That's what our economy is built on. And the Fed, I think, knows that. And they won't admit it, but I think they understand it well. So they understand they have to keep those asset bubbles inflated at all costs. So if you're just thinking this through, like, what would I do? Well, I want to take all of the assets that can get a haircut and I want to put them on my balance sheet because I never have to sell. Yeah. Uh, the Fed doesn't have a profit and loss. So well, if they uh, get, you're, yeah, you're, go ahead. Let's not, let's not give away the punchline before we build it up a little bit here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I, yeah, I could go on for hours about that, but as far as the specific programs that achieve this objective, you want me to touch on that? No, we don't. I mean, we don't need to dig into each one, but it's interesting because you're kind of showing how they've been adding more and more and more. Yeah. And as you said, they're actually getting the, the acronyms are getting longer. Yeah. It, like, yeah. Uh, it seems like basically each one gives them more power, more leeway. Correct. So at first they were um, allowing the primary dealers to buy assets and they were kind of loaning them. Now yep. they're like, shoot, why go through them? Let's just buy it ourselves. Is that kind yeah, of that's a great point. That's a great point. And that's the biggest difference from what I've seen between what they first came out with and what they've come out with more recently. The first thing was just the, the primary dealer credit facility. And that's just saying, okay, primary dealer, whatever's on your balance sheet, we'll 
take it from you and we'll give you a quote unquote loan. But if you look at the, the, the fine print, it's, yeah, it's a loan, but it's at 0% interest. And most likely they can roll it over indefinitely. So is that really a loan? And then, <clears throat> excuse me. So they say that's to support the primary dealers, but why couldn't the primary dealers with 1.5 trillion in excess reserves actually be proactive and go into the market, buy the stocks for the Federal Reserve, and then the Fed gives them this loan at 0% interest that they can roll over uh, indefinitely. So that kind of gets them around the laws that were set up. But to your point, the new abbreviations or acronyms they've come up with, these five-letter doozies, they just allow the Fed to go straight into the market and give credit, extend credit to a lot of entities, not just corporations, but it gives them, uh, like they just call them investors. And I, I don't know who these people are, but it gives financing to investors. And keep in mind, this is a non-recourse loan. Right. <laughs> so again, is this really a loan here? So they're giving this financing to investors for them to continue to buy asset securities. Well, these asset-backed securities have student loan debt, credit card debt, they have subprime auto loans, they have uh, SBA loans. So in essence, although that's not technically going onto the Fed's balance sheet, it's going onto a balance sheet of an entity that really doesn't have to sell. And prior, and it, things change so quickly. If you would have said last week, the Fed would go directly and buy the corporate bond market or something like that. The, people would have said, no, 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 they can't do that because of this stipulation or this law or this regulation. It'd have to be an act of Congress or right. the government would have to change something. Well, they pretty much just ignored that and said, yeah, it's it's the law, but <laughs> eh, whatever. Yeah. We don't care. And then just no one calls them out on it because the talking heads at CNBC or the quote unquote market they want the Fed to come in and prop things up because they're taking a 50% a haircut in their portfolio in the last 30 days. And you got Ackman coming out on CNBC and basically crying, trying to beg people to buy stocks. And I have nothing against him. I think he's a brilliant guy and I'd love to interview him. But he, well, I'll just say that he is emotional and really pleading with people to get out there and not only stay home, but also to, to kind of buy stocks. <laughs> like, yeah. okay, well, why, why is he doing this? He's gotta be talking his book. And I'd be pretty emotional too if I ran $10 billion and I just lost 5 billion of it yeah. in the last 30 days. But anyway, the, the bottom line is every week, every day that we move forward into this crisis, we're seeing the Fed take, and the government for that matter, taking more and more measures that really just ignore the law. And the bottom line is they're just going to do whatever they think they need to do in order to keep the bubbles inflated. Now, um, we kind of jumped right into thick of it because that's kind of where we are. Um, but if we want to just rewind the clock a little bit, this is not new. This is not because of the virus. This is been going on for a long period of time. I mean, you've been talking about this well before. So um, right. this, is, um, this isn't something like, oh, we have this uh, crisis, let's do this. They've been doing this, right? This is only accelerating it or is this completely new? Well, there's a couple programs that are completely new, but the, it, 
it's still the same. But it's a continuation, it's, right? It's a continuation and acceleration. Uh, yeah, with, with, with some of them, right? With some of these programs, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that they are new and they are to get around having to go through the primary dealers and the primary dealers make decisions or take action in order for those reserves that the Fed has to get out into the system. But as far as um, the majority of the acronyms, they used them in 2008. But, you know, to be clear, quantitative easing started off in the end of 2008 and was supposed to be a quote unquote temporary measure. Remember Ben Bernanke came out, promised everyone that it wasn't monetizing the debt because right. the definition of monetizing the debt would be if they kept it on the Fed's balance sheet. No, no, no. Just bring these treasuries onto the balance sheet temporarily. We're going to unwind as soon as we're out of the crisis. And Yellen said it's just going to be just like uh, watching paint dry. Yeah, uh, I yeah. think were her words or, or someone. And so we found that it's not going to be like watching paint dry because they try to unwind the balance sheet. And by the way, after QE1, now we have QE2, we have QE3, we try to unwind, that doesn't work. We have the, the not QE, which was them bailing out the repo market back in September 17th. And so my point is we've had this quote unquote temporary stimulus from QE that's now not only permanent, but growing exponentially. And then you combine that, everything that they do has the same type of effect. Why? Because it goes back to what I was saying earlier with the entire economy being built on asset bubbles, you continually have to print more and more and more money. You have to be more interventionist to make sure that those bubbles aren't collapsing. So let's look at the, the stimulus. They just came out with $2 trillion. Okay, well, we had a stimulus package back in 2009, but that was only 700 and roughly 80 billion. So you see the amount of QE that they're having to do, the amount of stimulus, the amount of the deficits that the government has to run in order to prop up these bubbles just gets more, 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 and more. Right. So. The point is any temporary program they come up with, whether it's in repo, whether it's in, I think now with these four letter acronyms, I don't think these are gonna go away anytime soon. I think they'll be more permanent. And it just gets to a point where you're almost like Japan, where the Fed owns 60% of the bond market and they own whatever 50 60 percent of etfs if it gets bad enough i think they just ignore that and buy stocks directly or bonds directly but it's it's not uh temporary it just it keeps growing and growing and growing yeah. and yeah. right now let's remember too the fed did this originally to give confidence to the market so they had kind of this fed put Right. And so that means the Fed is kind of backstopping the market. Well, we know right now that's gone, that's expired, because every time the Fed came out with a bigger bazooka over the last couple of weeks, the market's just shaking it off. It goes up for the next hour and then just tanks. The only thing that's um, uh, kind of propelled this market higher is this stimulus package that the government has come out with. But what happens when the sugar high from the, from the stimulus package uh, wears off and all of a sudden people go back to reality and say, oh, wait, the job report or the unemployment numbers went up by 3.3 million, right? And then what happens next week when the, the, there's another 3 million jobs that are lost? And, and it, generally, if you look through history, you'll find that the tipping point 
for the United States going into a recession is always about the unemployment rate. Right. So when the unemployment rate starts to spike, that's when things get bad. And not only are we spiking now from an all-time low, but we're just, I mean, it's a, it's a, a parabolic move when you look at a chart. And I'd also like to remind people that are comparing this to 2008, 2009, that back then the uh, jobless claims, the number we, we received today it, at its height was maybe 600,000. 650, yeah. 650, there you go. And then today it's, it's 3.2 or 3.3 million, so. The previous high was I think 1982 and it was 700,000. Yeah, 2008 was like 650,000 and now, now millions. Yeah. So um, this, this seems like um, to me, you know, if we trace this back to the break from the gold standard, if that's 1968, 1971, wherever number you want to start looking at, we've started building up the debt. And it seems like 82, 87, 2000, 2008, 2011, it keeps trying to deleverage that debt, right? right? And the Fed just keeps, nope, don't, let's just pump more debt in. But there's so much bad debt out there, as you say, all this junk that's out there. And it's just, it just, it just goes away in the blink of an eye. And, and, and that's what they're doing. They just keep trying to like reinflate it with more debt. And then each time right. it just takes more and more and more. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. And uh, it's just like taking a drug or uh, you know, drinking or anything. The, the more of the drug that you take, the more you need to get high. The and law of uh, diminishing returns. Yeah, ex exactly. So I think that's uh, what's going on right now. We know that the Fed is now pushing on a, a string. And at what point do we get where the government stimulus package is, has the same type of effect? And that's when you've really got problems. Because if you can't inflate a bubble through monetary policy, and if you can't do it through fiscal policy, then what's left other than the Fed doing what I think they've set themselves up to do now and that's just to buy and, and take the private sector balance sheet onto the balance sheet of the Fed. You know, it's a, it's a scary thought thinking about that. And before we dive into that, I'm just curious, you know, we talk about the law of diminishing returns. And so we can see that, right? It was 15 trillion, it's 30 trillion. I mean, what's it going to be this time, right? Each time it gets more and more. And it almost seems like more money is being put out than the economic growth that we're getting back in return, or we're almost at that point. Is that so? Like, we're spending more than we're getting. Are we? Are yeah. we there yet? Yeah, there's been several studies done that show once the debt to GDP gets up to a certain level in a country, that every single dollar or every single, um, uh, yeah, I guess every dollar the government spends they get back less in return. So there's an opposite money multiplier right. effect. Yep. And I think we're there. I think the number that they came out with, I wish I could remember the specific study. It's very famous. But they said about 100 to 110% of GDP. And I, I want to make sure that people are, are clear that because uh, a lot of people in the market or on Twitter, they say, well, yeah, we could be like Japan where they're buying all of these uh, ETFs and the bonds like we talked about earlier, and they're printing all of this money and it really hasn't created inflation. It's more created kind of a zombie economy where they just have very low deflation for, for decades on end. Dag and although that is a possibility, I think in the United States, 
it's not a probability. The probability is very low that we see that because of the dynamics with the reserve currency, the dollar, and how much the Fed will have to print, and the fact that we're, that we're seeing the supply chains being disrupted within the United States. And I think with what's going on with the, uh, the, the, the illness, we'll call it. I don't know if you're going to put this on YouTube, but <laughs> we'll, say, we'll say the illness. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Cervasa sickness, see, you say. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I think you could see a situation where there's a lot less goods and services that are imported. And if there are fewer goods and services being imported, there's more dollar, there's fewer dollars being exported. So more dollars are staying within the domestic economy. And if you combine that with MMT, which is a part of the stimulus package, right. and you combine that with the Fed creating all of these additional deposits, because as I'm sure you know, what, what most people don't understand is when the Fed creates money, and they just, we call it print money. They're, they're not really printing the money that you, that most people think of. It's, it's not, it is kind of dollars, but it's more, it's, it's, it's bank money. Right. It's just Debt. reserves for the, for the banks and the primary dealers that are under the Fed's umbrella. So in order for the money that the Fed prints to get out into the real economy, well, before it took uh, an action of the primary deal, they would have to do something. They'd have to buy a financial asset or they would have to create a loan. And that creates an additional deposit, which makes the money supply grow. So if you have the Fed now going directly to the real economy to create deposits, the government is doing it as well with MMT and all these other programs. And you have the fact that there's fewer dollars escaping the United States then you have just simple, more dollars chasing the same amount of goods or services, or I would argue actually fewer goods and services, because if we start, not only the supply chains being broken down right now because of this illness, but also in the future, if you have Trump or Biden or whomever come out and say, listen, we need to stop uh, producing face masks in China. We can't be reliant on uh, India for our pharmaceuticals. We can't be reliant on Taiwan for our ventilators. So we've got to do all these things in the United States. Well, that takes time, first and right. foremost. You can't just wave a magic wand and have all these supply chains appear. So in the interim, you have a reduced amount of supply. And even when that supply comes online, it's at a much, much higher price because you're producing that in a developed economy as opposed to a, a Vietnam, something like that. So the bottom line is you have less goods and services, you have more dollars chasing them and fewer dollars escaping. So if you have fewer dollars escaping, you can have a quote unquote strong dollar. And I, I talked about this in a video this morning, but you can have a strong dollar. So every single time the average Joe turns on CNBC, it's the dollar strong. Holy cow, the dollar's strong. The DXY is at 110. It's at right. 120. The dollar's uh, you know, crushing the euro. It's crushing the Aussie dollar or the yen, anything like this. While at the same time, the average Joe is going down to Whole Foods and the price of his apples are going from a dollar to $2 to $3, to $4, to $5. Right. And so there's this disconnect, I think, with people. And that's something that I'm trying to preach as much as, as I can that, hey, let's not, let's understand that you have to compartmentalize your personal CPI with the strength or weakness 
of the dollar that you hear on TV. And, and this is why. It's because of what's going on with the Fed, the government, and uh, the, the illness. And, but I, also, I want to be clear, too, that the uh, economy was extremely, extremely weak. And it was built on a house of cards. This, at some point in time, we would have had this happen, whether it was with this illness or something else. And a lot of people say, oh, we can have this V-shaped recovery, which we might have due to liquidity, but we won't have due to fundamentals because they say, well, the unemployment rate was low. We had such a great economy prior to this. My rebuttal to that is always very simple. If we had such a great economy prior to going into this crisis, why did we have interest rates at zero? Right. Right. Like why did the economy need interest rates so low? Why was it when Powell took rates up to two or 2.25%, all of a sudden things started to implode. Right. If we had such an awesome economy, if we had such an amazing economy, don't you think we should be able to normalize interest rates? And why can't the Fed unwind their balance sheet? Why do they have to do repo? Why do they have to do QE if we've got such an amazing economy? Right. Yeah, it was definitely cracking up well before the the sickness. It was it was uh, it was kind of like I called it, it uh, at first. I said it was like the pinprick on a balloon, but really it was like getting a nail in a tire that was already deflating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, one of those. But you know, yeah, you're right. Everybody's saying the dollar's too strong. The dollar's too strong. I see lots of people calling. You know, to let's weaken the dollar, weaken the dollar. Um, but of course, the dollar is the strongest. Everyone's flying to liquidity. Um, they're trying to do that right by printing more and lowering rates and all these programs. Um, but I guess your last video, you were kind of saying that these limited, uh, these unlimited bailouts actually lead to the dollar going down. So right now it's the dollars going up, but they're doing these bailouts to try to weaken them, but you think they overshoot the goal and maybe they just, it just ends up making it too weak. I, well, we've got to define what we're talking about by a weak dollar first and foremost. So if you're talking about the dollar relative to foreign currencies, that would be one answer. But if we're talking about the dollar relative to the apples that you buy at Whole Foods, mm, that would be a completely different answer. Or maybe the dollar compared to the bond market or the dollar compared to a specific stock or the S&P. So I, I, I really want to encourage people to compartmentalize those. So I, I could see a situation because of what I explained before that the dollar could definitely go up. I mean, I agree with Brent Johnson and I, well, I can totally see where he's coming from, whether it's a guy like Brent or Jeff Snyder or anyone who's in that uh, Raul Paul with that dollar bull camp. But what they're saying is, isn't necessarily that the prices of goods and services or the price of your health care or the price of gasoline or your rent is going to go down. They're saying that the value of the dollar relative to the euro is going to go up. Right. That, that's a totally different uh, argument. Yeah. And I, I do see a, a possibility where they'd have to come in with a Plaza Accord 2.0 and artificially lower the value of the dollar, they meaning the Fed in the foreign FX markets to pump enough dollars out there. They've got the swap lines going right now with the, uh, the other central banks, with the majority of central banks, except for China. And that could ease the pressure. But even if you ease that pressure, it's still kind of creating more dollar demand in the future. So, and I don't, it's, it's difficult because you've got the, um, 
some countries that would really like to see a, a dollar being devalued, some countries would not be too keen on that. So I don't think you're going to get a, a universal, hey, yeah, let's all hold hands, kumbaya, let's bring down the dollar like they did in 1985, I think it was. But there, I think the Fed can just say, listen, we don't care what you want to do. We're just going to take $5 trillion and pump it into the FX markets and just be like a, a, a currency manipulator, just like uh, China has done for right. so long. And they just bring it down. Now, that's not to say, now let me play devil's advocate here. That's not to say that even if they did that, you would say you would see hyperinflation in the United States. Let's remember that when they did Plaza Accord 1.0, we'll call it, the value of the dollar in the FX markets, especially relative to the, uh, the German mark and the yen, went down over two years by 50%, 5-0. But if you look at inflation in the United States, it still only was up maybe 5 or 6% per year. So again, completely, completely different buckets. Right. Yeah. And, and the way they measure that inflation, like you said, doesn't take everything into account. So everyone knows the price of gas went up and the price of homes went up and the, you know, all the things that we need, the CPI doesn't measure those for some reason, right? Uh, cost, yeah. School went up, healthcare went up. I mean, everything's gone up, right? Yeah. And everyone's CPI is different because of what they buy. So my CPI, as an example, is completely different than some like a school teacher that's making $30,000 a year because the, the prices of the stuff I buy is uh, might be staying the same or even if I'm buying the same types of items like food, let's call it, it's a much lower percentage of my overall income where if you've got a school teacher making 40 grand a year where the majority of her or his income is going to rent, healthcare, food, gas, he or she could experience 15% inflation per year right. with those specific items that occupy 90%, 95%, 100% of their paycheck. And um, all while the dollar is, is getting strong or right. is supposedly, supposedly very, very strong. strong. Yeah. So um, it's, uh, it's like watching a car crash, right? We're witnessing this all in real time. It's an, it's an interesting time to be watching the markets we can see the development that is going down. We can see, uh, you know, models, like you said, maybe Japan, maybe it's different, et cetera. What do you think, I mean, on your YouTube channel, you say helping you build wealth and thrive. So how do we take this information and discern it in a way that we could try to thrive from this? Um, yeah. Right. How, how do we decipher this? What are we watching for and what are we trying to do? Well, first of all, I like to, try to encourage people to compartmentalize their portfolio as well. So what I do is I have 10% for insurance, 80% for an investment, which I would define as something that pays me to own it. And then 10% for a speculation, which I define as just something I'm betting on the price going up. Is insurance is like gold, like precious metals? like Correct, absolutely. It would be yeah. gold, not even silver. It would just be physical gold. Right. It wouldn't be an ETF, just physical. And that you're, I'm not trying to get rich. I'm just trying to maintain the purchasing power that I already have. Right. So with, uh, I think oil down at, uh, call it $21 a barrel, you see companies like Exxon, Chevron, um, Shell Dutch, it really, really just tanking in price. And again, it's not that they don't have problems. They definitely do. 
but at a certain point, it's all a function of price. And if I can get a 12% dividend, let's say, on an Exxon, and I know they've got a lot of debt and they've, they've got a, but um, I'm not too worried about that long term. And I also realized that they could stop paying their dividend over the next one year or so. It's very realistic. But listen, I, I'm not buying Exxon right here to hold for three weeks or six weeks. I'm buying it to hold for 10 years. Yep. And if you believe that cars are still going to run on gas in, call it 10 years, then I think you've got to believe the uh, price of Exxon will most likely increase above and beyond, call it $35, and they'll be able to pay their dividend and they'll most likely be able to increase their dividend after a year, after a year and a half, after all of this is in the rear view mirror. Even if the economy goes into a Japan type situation, that still doesn't mean that oil is at $20 a barrel. And it's not to say that it can't go down to three or 10. But what I like to uh, advise people and what I try to do myself, and psychologically it's actually very hard to do, but I try to completely ignore whether the price of XYZ asset is going up or down. I, I just forget about it. And I just ask myself, is this cheap? or is it expensive? And if it's cheap, historically speaking, then I buy it. If it's, if it's expensive, then if it's in my portfolio, then I go ahead and sell it. So I think you, you've got to look at the, the oil right now and say, historically, it's definitely very cheap. I'm not saying now's the time to go in, but what I'm doing is just starting a watch list mm -hmm. of yeah. uh, stocks or assets that I would like to buy at a specific price. And if they get down to that price, maybe I pull the trigger a little bit. I think that's something proactive everyone can do. Also, I think that the average Joe or Jane can always go out and make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure they've got a fixed rate mortgage. And I know the majority of the people in the United States do, but if you don't, make that change. Right, <laughs> Yeah, now's the time. You've got interest rates at, at 5,000 year lows. Go ahead and lock them in right now because over the next 10, 20, 30 years while you're paying off this mortgage, the, the chances are very high that the rate of inflation exceeds your interest rate. And if the rate of inflation exceeds your interest rate, that's a transfer of wealth from the lender to the borrower. In other words, it's a transfer of wealth from the bank to you. And that's yeah, what you that's a, want. <laughs> that's a great point. I love, I love that point. I'm curious, yeah. so like your thesis on, you know, the Fed buying everything, QEN limited, the dollar goes to zero, crashing the system, the house of cards, as you said, crashes at some point. I mean, do we start to look at like, okay, well, shoot, maybe equities won't be a good play. I mean, maybe they run out of ammunition. Maybe the diminishing returns get to it. Maybe it's more about gold. Maybe it's about lifeboats, alternatives outside of the dollar, or you don't think it gets that bad. No, I do. I don't know that the dollar goes to zero, and I definitely don't think it goes to zero short term. I think five years, 10 years, it could go, I'm mean, not to zero, but it could lose call it 50, 60% of its value, could lose 20% of its value per year. But I think that uh, in what I'm talking about is not only in the United States, but outside the United States against the euro or against right. all these other currencies. So, but I could see, I definitely could see hyperinflation if you define it 
by the dollar losing 50% of its value on an annual basis. Totally could see that in five, 10 years, but I don't see it in the next uh, call it five what, and, so. and what do you think about FDIC? It was a pretty interesting. The head of FDIC put that video out, right? And said, everything's safe. Don't be worried. Um, this tells you all you need to know. Why, why do they have to come out and do that? Right. Uh, the, let me touch on your earlier point. Uh, I do think long term you want to have hedges against the dollar. So that's why I like physical gold for a speculation. Obviously, you got to throw Bitcoin in there. I think the asymmetry is definitely what you want. A lot of people get on me because um, they like to be an either or type person. Either you're gung-ho about gold and you think it should be 100% of your portfolio or you're super gung-ho about Bitcoin and crypto yep. and you think that should be 100% of your portfolio. I, I really don't understand that. I don't understand the arguments going back and forth between the yeah. two camps because to me, we're all on the same team. That's what I and say. The, they're not even competing asset classes in my book. They're totally, they're not even apples and oranges. I always say they're like apples or they're like oranges and, and Ford pickup trucks. That right. <laughs> Why would you not have both? But one is insurance and one is a speculation. So I, I wanted to, to touch on that. What was, <laughs> I lost track of your other No, question. I appreciate that, that. And actually I was just, uh, I, I, I talk about both. I've been a Bitcoin guy yeah. for a long time. I talk about gold and I constantly get hit with that. But look, our goal, our job is not to pick the one asset. Right? Yeah. Our goal is to have a, an allocation and we, right. we, we, we do it based off of risk and reward. And I like both. I think there's yeah. room for both and, and for a lot of the same reasons, but also for different reasons. Absolutely. Yeah. You got, you got to own different asset classes for different reasons and different objectives within your portfolio to have a mathematical probability of you being uh, ahead of the game in the long run. And uh, I don't want to get into the boring nerdy stuff. Some of my videos, I go into binomial calculators and the Kelly criterion because before I got into entrepreneurship, Way back in college, I, I counted cards at blackjack. So it always put me in that mindset of probabilities and money management and, and all so that then, stuff. So uh, then we're watching uh, the Fed go into QE infinity. Uh, yeah. A lot of you know potential inflation, deflation to watch for. So as investors, we want to kind of keep an eye on that, try to hedge against the dollar inflation at some point through gold, um, maybe through Bitcoin. Um, and then keep an eye on the world dominator stocks. I like to call them, right? The value stocks and maybe look for good entry points at some point because you think even though the, the Fed's going to go full, full crazy bazooka style, um, those stocks are going to survive. They're, they're going to prop them up as long as they need to. Yeah, I think they're going to try. So where's your entry point? I'd go back to just asking the question, is it cheap or is it expensive? Like a lot of people are trying to call a bottom right now, saying, oh, it's the bottom, buy the dip, buy the dip. Well, it, I don't do that because I look at the market cap to GDP, if you want to call it the Buffett indicator, right. and or I look at a CAPE ratio. And as even though we've come down, um, call it 20% or so from the uh, highs, it doesn't mean the market's cheap. Right. The market's still extremely, extremely overvalued. Of course, there are pockets of opportunity. That's true. But as a whole, the S&P is still up in the stratosphere. So I wouldn't be a buyer of the entire market until the CAPE ratio at least comes down below 15. And I'd, I'd like it even below 10. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm looking at as far as your blue chips 
for an entry point. But I'd also encourage people to look outside the United States because there's stocks in other markets that are down way below where they were even in 2009. And a lot of these stocks are great dividend payers. They would be considered blue chips in that other uh, country. Of course, you gotta worry about the exchange risk if your expenses are denominated in dollars. But I think that people should maybe just start doing some research to see what opportunities exist, not only in the United States, but potentially outside of the United States as well. Yeah. Great, great advice. I like that. What about one last question? What do you, what do you think about the uh, Dow to gold ratio? Do you, do you look at that? Yeah, I've seen that. I know it's, um, I, I think it's a lot like the silver to gold ratio and that it, I don't know, I'm not good enough to know if that's an indicator or if it's just something that's kind of interesting to look at. So I try to kind of stay in my lane, if you will, <laughs> and just yeah. ask myself, is cheaper is silver cheap compared to silver? And not necessarily is silver cheap compared to gold? Or I did a thing. I did a video titled Silver is not what you think it is. And I basically said, I don't believe in the gold to silver ratio. Silver isn't needed anymore. And then that that ratio was broken a long time ago. Um, the Dow to gold ratio, I still believe in that. So it's something that I keep an eye on. But um, yeah, I know I've, uh, with regarding the silver to gold, I interviewed Rick Rule the other day, and he's in your camp. He, he doesn't, he thinks it's kind of cool to look at, but it, it's not really an indicator. And uh, I know I interviewed Schiff the other day and, uh, and Lynette Zhang, and they're under the belief system that, and they're old school. They've been doing this a long time. And they, they believe there's going to be a one-to-one -one ratio again, whether the whether that means the Dow's at 20,000 and an ounce of gold is 20,000 or 5,000, it doesn't matter. They, they just think that at some point in time in the next couple of years, we're going to be at a one-to-one. -one. If we have time for one more question. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so you did a video talking about Jim Rickards calling the revaluation to gold. I kind of copied yeah. off of your video about that as well. <laughs> okay. um, and so I'm curious about that. I mean, if, if, you know, the unlimited bazooka cannons and the yeah. destruction of the dollar and all the current, I mean, we already see the, you know, IMF or the BIS calling for digital currencies with their SDRs, yeah. which yeah. maybe like Chinese yeah. to people listening. But um, I'm curious based off that video, I mean, if this QE infinity and diminishing returns and it all fails, no confidence left in currencies, the argument is the only way to restore confidence is to go back to some gold standard, whether that's 1% or 100%. Um, do you think there's a, a good probability of that happening, a very low probability or no chance, or where do you sit? I think there's a very good probability that we'll have to have a currency. I have no idea what currency it will be. I don't know if it'll be digital. I, I would assume it would be digital. I don't know if that's a digital SDR or a digital dollar or Libra, who knows, something like that. But Or maybe a Bitcoin, maybe, hopefully, I mean, that would be awesome from a philosophical standpoint there's nothing more that i'd like to see than to have a decentralized currency is as what we use in the the world to to transact but i i don't think the governments would be too uh too keen on that to say the least why would but they why I, would I, they ever why would they ever vote to tie their hands behind their back right 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And to have a government backed digital currency, it gives them so much control. I don't think most people understand. I don't think they've pulled back the layer of the onion because I hear a lot of people on Twitter or even in the comments of my videos, they say, well, the dollar, it already is a digital currency. I mean, I don't really use paper money. I just use electronic digits on my bank account and I use an ATM card. And what they're not understanding is if we had a true, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if we had a, a, a true digital currency, the way where they've each uh, token, let's call it, has a serial number and they track that, it goes to someone's electronic wallet, then the Fed or the, the government could control how, not only the supply, but they could control the demand. And most people don't realize that. As an example, they could say, okay, here's your, your $1,200 worth of MMT every for this month, but you got to spend it in the next 48 hours. Sure. It's programmable. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's programmable. It's so specific. You, could, you have to spend in this time frame. You can only use it for these certain things. Mm -hmm. Like it can be stopped, seized, manip you know, whatever. So uh, for sure, that's what they'd want. Um, and, and I think that's kind of where it goes is like a digital SDR most likely, but I would think it yeah. maybe has to have some gold backing. Maybe it's 10% yeah, that's, or. Yeah, that's where I was going with that for sure. It's a great point. I think that eventually the fiat, the fiat currency system that we've been trying out since 1971 is and kind of going back to Brenton Woods, that's going to collapse. And I think you're going to have a total loss of confidence in not only the dollar, the yen, the euro, you name it. I, I don't think that's tomorrow, but I think 10 years, 15 years down the road, that's where we're gonna be. And to your point, any currency is all about confidence. Uh, any economy really is all about confidence. So to right. instill the confidence, I don't think the government or the IMF or whomever is issuing this currency is gonna have a choice but to back it with something that people have confidence in. And uh, again, going back to Twitter and, and my comments, a lot of people say, oh, the government would never back it with gold. That's crazy. That ties their hand. But they're implying that the government has a choice. Right, exactly. And I don't know that they would have a choice. Now, whether the digital SDR or the digital dollar is backed by 1%, 100%, 40%, who knows, but, um, and then of course, I think what will happen. So in the short term, I think you'll have this digital fiat that gives them total control. I think that blows up. They have to have something that's backed by gold, but I only think that lasts maybe 10, 20 years where everyone forgets what happened with the disaster of fiat currency. And you have all these politicians or uh, economists start claiming that, oh yeah, this, this, the, our problem is this stupid gold standard. We gotta get off this gold standard. If we could only have the ability and the control over the amount of currency in the system, then we could just solve all the problems and we could just print money and, and everyone's gonna forget about what happened 10, 15 years ago, just like everyone now or 30 days ago forgot what happened in the GFC. Right. They totally forgot. Oh, oh, yeah, that was the market can never go down. You hear all these things. Uh, the, the narrative is exact or was exactly like it was back in 2008, 2007. It's, it's shocking right. that the recency bias of the not only the mainstream media, but the population at large and that, that they just have this kind of like a selective amnesia 
where if, if, it's, if it's a cognitive dissonance type of rationalizing, where if, if it makes them feel good about their 401k or whatever they have invested in the market, if that's going to give them more purchasing power in the future, then they just kind of tend to forget things that are inconvenient or make up things or cherry pick data points to make it uh, easier to sleep at night knowing that the stock market always goes up, right? right. And the dollar is always going to be the world reserve currency. Well, uh, I don't think so. Right. <laughs> Man, so much more to talk about. I'd love to get into some more of like the bailouts and things like that. So many different angles we could go, but I know we're out of time. So, yeah. so we'll go ahead and cut it off. But I, I appreciate you giving the time. Uh, it was it was a great conversation, and uh, thank you. Yeah, for sure. Let's. I loved the conversation. Let's definitely do it again soon. Okay. Thanks, George.